Blog Talk Radio. Ellington said, music is the oldest entity, it is the Esperanto of the world. The roots of American music come in part through the blues. Today we explore the music through the hands of some of those who bring it forth. Joseph A. Rosen is an award-winning photographer who has traveled the world to get the shots that have appeared in the New York Times, Newsweek, Sports Illustrated, and many others. Today we look at some of the performers Rosen has captured over the years in a book of intimate close-ups, Blues Hands. Uh, Joe, welcome to the program. Well, uh, thanks for having me, and it's great to be here, and uh, I look forward to uh, our conversation. Well, we've run across one another at blues festivals around Pennsylvania in recent years, and uh, I certainly couldn't help but notice you uh, with your equipment and all that, and I figured you were a professional and you were doing the job, but uh, it's only recently that we actually got to have a talk uh, back at the Reading Blues Festival, and it was sort of like, you know, I was reporting for BroadwayWorld.com and trying to get interviews and get sound, and you were trying to get the pictures. And uh, I just remember the discussion we had while we were on a break. I don't know if you do. Uh, not offhand. <laughs> okay. But refresh me. <laughs> what, well, we just we were just sort of taking a break in the in the hallway between I think between shows. And we were just talking, and uh, I got to sort of know you a little bit more. And then it's sort of like. You, you get reminded because I finally put two and two together when I saw a copy of Blue's Hands in the house of Michael Cloran, the Penn's Peak yeah. operator and the, the man who put on the, the Pennsylvania Blues Festival all these years. And I picked the book up and I was just like, wow. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, I have to get you on. <laughs> well, great. I'm, I'm glad it uh, created that uh, situation. I'm glad you liked it. <laughs> I'm quite well, pleased with is... how it came out. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, and we were just talking before we went on about uh, your archive of, of photos, not just music, but so many other things. I guess the first question, when I, I looked at a lot of those pictures and I saw how close they were and how intimate and detailed they were, what got you about the hands? Well, um, every photographer who shoots music will um, pretty much occasionally shoot some hands pictures. It's a natural uh, and um, you know part of the process. Uh, I, I have this archive, and I was trying to. I wanted to get a book out, and I was trying to get my brain around how to do the um, the whole the history of the world, sort of. You know, everything I have. And I was editing one day, and two pictures came up next to each other on the screen, um, one of Jimmy McCracklin's hand, um, which from a Pennsylvania Blues Festival, um, and another of a bassist, uh, just his hand and the bass with a cigarette stuck between the strings uh, on the head. And yep. it, it was like an aha moment. It was like, ah, I can, I can focus in on hands, 
and uh, you know that will help me just get a handle on the book. Now it's not my whole archive; it's one little slice of it, but uh, it uh, it was a theme, and I was able to follow it, and it came out okay. Yeah. Now the cover shot of Willie King's hand on that weathered Stratocaster really <laughs> struck with me. How? Um, I mean, how many photos did you go through, and how how did you uh, choose that one? Well, um, let's see. I mean, I I had a lot in the archive, and then uh, once I got the idea, I shot for two or three years. Every time I'd go to a festival or a performance, uh, I would spend an extra ten minutes shooting hands uh, on each artist. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to say how many, but thousands of pictures, you know, <laughs> uh, were uh, are in the files. Um, I wanted uh, a picture that said you know, said blues, uh, I wanted an African-American, uh, and I uh, wanted, uh, I don't know, it just spoke to me as uh, kind of summing up the whole concept. I should add here that while uh, a good portion of the pictures in the book are close-ups of hands, there's a whole range. It involves uh, gesture, moment, mm-hmm. um, um, emotion, but hands are a th- thread that run through it all. So it's you know there's pictures of people from head to toe, pictures with uh, you know four or five people in it. It's not just close-ups, um, but yeah, hands somehow, some way, run through each picture. Well, that's that's one thing that's really interesting is is that the hand gestures. Like you have a wonderful shot of Irma Thomas, I think, yeah. and <laughs> and she's doing something. Now I've never seen her live, so I could be wrong about her in particular, but. I've watched numerous performers. Little Jimmy Scott reminds me, uh, I got to see him in the mid-90s, and when he was performing, he was constantly weaving, almost like weaving energy for the air with his hands. I knew Jimmy a little bit. Um, Wonderful guy. (laughs) Yeah, I I did get to meet him very briefly after that show, and uh, just the nicest man. Mm. And it was like, I've seen him do it, I've seen Annie Lennox do it, um... I forget the name of the young lady that I saw do it here in Harrisburg recently. She was just, they were all doing kind of the same thing. There's this wonderful weaving and movement, and it's part of their presentation, but it's also, I think, part of their own feel for what's yeah. happening in the moment. Um, Irma is, uh, and I'm looking at the picture now, um, and she's a wonderfully warm performer, and I think that comes mm-hmm. across, and she just spread her hands and, uh, you know, a huge smile. And like I say, uh, it's not a close-up at all, but it does involve gesture, and her hand is quite prominent. <laughs> and there's something about that. It, again, it's, it's you know, sh- her voice is her instrument, but her hands are part of it. It's it's part of that whole thing, and there's something very emotional and really cool about that. Yeah, well, I, like I say, the pictures are as much about emotion as they are about the graphic content. Uh, you know, I wanted to get the feel of the music across and you know uh it was just uh, the hands became a theme to convey that a thread and a theme mm-hmm. well i definitely want to ask about some of the folks in the book and others sure. um let's begin with with you where does <laughs> where does joe's history begin where where did it all start for you getting behind the camera well uh, i mean growing up my dad always had a pretty good camera and it always fascinated me and um in high school, um, I did uh, the high school yearbook and the, the school newspaper. Mm-hmm. I did the photography for that. And then when I went to college, um, 
I realized, well, two things happened. One is um, I found that uh, my school, Carnegie in Pittsburgh, had a student-defined major program. I was in the humanities school, and I realized mm-hmm. photography was the only thing I was self-motivated to do. I wasn't a history student, <laughs> not, not much of an English major, uh, although I can write reasonably cogently. Uh, but uh, I was able <laughs> to build build a program around uh, photography, doing volunteerism, uh, taking courses in the fine arts college and the design school, and I had to meet the core requirements of the, you know, the uh, humanities school. So um, I was able to, you know, get a degree from a major university that says photography that has no photography program, Um, but it it served (laughs) me well. Um, And it was, you know, kind of of the moment, too. It was, uh, you know, the 70s and things were, you know, changing and evolving. Uh, so I was doing little freelance jobs uh, before I graduated, and then um, uh, the day I graduated, I got a job working doing technical photography at one of the libraries at Carnegie. So uh, I've never done anything but photography for a living. Uh, sometimes, sometimes fat, sometimes thin, but uh, always photography. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting too. Now your your father must have offered quite a bit of really personal instruction that you know that and that just built up before you even went in right well i mean he was a hobbyist he was not a uh you know uh he did a lot of travel and stuff uh it was more a little later on with some of the people in my high school who really got me going on the technique and improving and working in the dark room and things like that uh my dad just uh you know he he had enthusiasm for it but uh I, I kind of picked up that ball and ran with it. Mm-hmm. Now you said you started with a technical photographer's job, and it's making a name for yourself as one, as that person behind the camera. I mean, I work in broadcasting, and so it was easier for me to be the guy behind the board, or you know, the microphone, and not the person out front. And actually, to me, producing other people's shows and you know, doing. Doing some of the more grunt jobs is all is as satisfying, if not more. Was there ever an area of it that just took your fancy more than others? Well, um, I mean, the technical photography job was um, well, two things: it was bread and butter, you know, mm-hmm. pay the rent. Uh, it was consistent, and it also provided me with a wonderful darkroom to work in. Um, great facility. Um, cool. You know that that was uh, my day job, and uh, I was doing a lot of personal photography, like I say, small uh, event jobs, headshots for actors, things like that. Uh, And it just kind of grew. At one point, uh, I had a brief job at the the morning paper in uh, Pittsburgh that kind of fell through, but uh, I also got um, through that. uh, I wound up being uh, the staff photographer for uh, one of the city magazines there, Pittsburgher Magazine, and that was a great experience. So uh, I ran with that for a while. Mm-hmm. Well, um, you mentioned a fellow named Herman Leonard as one oh, of yeah. your mentors. Tell me a little about him. Well, Herman uh, is the dean of the jazz photographers. Um, you've seen his work uh, probably, whether you realize it or not, on the PBS Jazz series. Um, mm-hmm. President Clinton used to give portfolios of his to uh, visiting heads of state. Uh, he's in the Smithsonian. He's a you know um, a, a lifetime Grammy achieve, achievement award. Um, he um, his look uh, had a, a, his work had a distinct look, and my work. Uh, kind of um, before I ever knew him, kind of echoed that a little bit, the black background and the figure emerging from it. 
Um, mm-hmm. And then I got to meet him, and we hit it off. So, uh, but I was, you know, in my 40s at that point. Uh, so I had a, I was established, you know, as a photographer, and I had my technique. But he was a mentor, sort of on. Uh, keeping the spirit alive and aging gracefully and a lot of things. And I, I've said this before about Herman. Uh, if he, if I'd never touched a camera, I'd be proud to call him a friend. He was just a wonderful man and helpful and giving and uh, wise. So um, he, he was a mentor to me. That's great. Um, you talked about something that leads me to a question I wanted to ask of uh, Herman's style, your style, coming out of the dark and into the shot. Um, since I'm not a photographer, let's talk about the science of the shot. Now, every situation is different, but is there anything specific you look for or try to put into getting, you know, the shot that's going to be in the paper or on a cover? What What do you look for in those moments? Um, well, uh, everything, all the technique and all the cameras and all the tools in the world uh, are to serve the moment. You got to get the idea across, whether it's emotional or, uh, you know, showing action, a particular action. Um, so, uh, I, I think, you know, I like my photos. Uh, you know, I, I sometimes say I like them to be like politely splat. I like them to be right there. You see it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to ask questions. You know what I'm, sh- you know, what I'm trying to show you. Uh, yep. I think it's all in service of the moment. And the the idea, what made you want to take that picture? What what stopped you? Uh, what did you see? Then you apply all the technique that you've learned to get that rendered somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, here's a question: um, Do you prefer old-fashioned film to electronics? How do you feel about the way that uh, science and technology has moved forward? And you you see these wonderful digital cameras and that sort of thing. But uh, what do you prefer? Well, um, I prefer uh, getting the picture. Um, I have kind of half a career in in the film world and half a career in the digital world. I'm kind of, you know, I'm of an era that covered both, you know, kind of covered the uh, transition. Um, I just see them as different forms of capture. Um, Certainly digital has has arrived. I mean, the the quality, you know, some of the early digital cameras, the very early ones were a little shaky and, you know, didn't quite have the polish and the, uh, you know, uh, the the top top quality of the best film cameras, mm-hmm. but that's all gone. They're they're both great. So I have a, uh, a big part of my archive is on film, both black and white, and mostly color slides. And then uh, since about I don't know 2003, uh, it's pretty much been digital. And I don't really have a preference. I just think they're. Uh, both different forms of capture, and you have to learn, you know, to to um, to use them properly. Right. I shoot uh, almost exclusively of, digital now. Okay. Well, one friend of mine who is a photographer has talked about how difficult it is to stay current with the equipment and the technology, and also the expense. Um, you don't have to give me figures, but I assume you sink a fair amount into your gear and staying yes, current and all um, that. Um, yes. The the cameras are evolving much faster. Uh, in in general, I mean, you used to in the film days, you get a good Nikon or a good Leica, you know, which are high end yep. cameras or good Canon. You use it for nine, ten years, even sometimes longer. They, you know, maybe with a little maintenance, they will last for forever. But with the digital world, particularly when it first started, the the changes were uh, leaps and bounds. You know, they they change and get 
quite a bit better in a, in a much shorter period of time. So you have to keep current with that. And then mm-hmm. there's the computers, kind of the same situation. Uh, and then memory and storage. Uh, with digital um, or with film, the the cost was kind of front end. You bought a, a really good camera, and you know it stayed with you for quite a while. Uh, in digital, it's both front and back end. You have to get a good camera, and then you have to keep uh, your computer and your software and your storage on the same level. So um, it's it's digital is actually more time consuming than film. Uh, you have to spend more time editing. It's you know, axiomatic that, you know, for every hour you spend shooting, you're going to spend an hour editing. So, uh, and, you know, some people think digital is instant. You press a button and it's there. Well, that's not true. (laughs) Well, where did you feel, now you talked a little bit about your beginnings. Where did you feel you really began to get noticed for your, for your work? What, What kind of opportunities landed for you there? Oh, well, um, couple of things. Uh, one is I was one of the early Americans to get into China, and it's a long story, but right after it became legal, um, uh, I was able to uh, get passage with a group of students, uh, everybody was under the age of 30, uh, to study communes and commune life in China, but it was just a great opportunity. So I did that, and um, I had a show at the uh, Carnegie Museum in Pittsburgh in 1977, I believe it was. You know, I was uh, still in my 20s, and so that um, got me some notice, at least locally. And um, then, you know, I started doing music photography on my own, just as a a fan who happened to be a photographer, but some of that stuff started getting out, and people were seeing it. And I showed some of that in the museum show, too, so... Um, and then, of course, working for the newspaper and the um, and the city magazine, you know, again locally, mm-hmm. uh, it 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 was a career. People people began to know about me. Now I've seen some pictures of you in like battle gear, armor, and stuff. <laughs> Any place that you consider maybe the most exciting or most dangerous? There might be a few. Uh well, I mean. I, you know, I mean, I enjoy doing the photography. People say, oh, you're working so hard and you're carrying so much stuff. And I mean, mm-hmm. and sometimes I do carry a lot of gear. Other times I just have a small, simple camera. Uh, but um, exciting. I mean, I, I until the current uh, corona crisis, twice a year I would shoot on something called the Legendary Rhythm and Blues Cruise and teach a workshop yep. there, too. And that's a, just a, a joy. Um, you know, great music, great people. Uh, a lot of mingling, um, you know, pe- mm-hmm. people get a chance to actually meet the artist, maybe have a meal with them. Uh, so that's that's very exciting, and I look forward to <laughs> when that starts up again. And, uh, dangerous, I mean, I found myself in a couple rough spots, not rougher places where people have questioned what I'm doing, but I've never had uh, any pro- real problem. I've had to have a discussion or, you know, explain, explain myself, but uh, most people, when they see you're sincere and you're not, you know, pushy, uh, are pretty much okay with it. It's kind of not so much what you do, but how you do it. Right. Well, you were talking about the cruises, and there is a mention here of 
going to see Muddy Waters in 1976, and it sounded like this was a quest of sorts. Uh, tell me about that, and it, it obviously helped propel you into more of what you do and you know, well, some of the subjects in blues hands. Yeah, um, I was um, I was already a blues fan. I happened to be also a professional photographer, and uh, I was by that time already doing a blues radio show in Pittsburgh on WYEP, um, uh, cool. which I didn't. Uh, for six years until I left town. I started in 75 and left in 81. Um, so at that time, Muddy played three or four places on the East Coast, uh, D.C., Baltimore, New York, Boston. Um, and uh, a friend of mine, a uh, harmonica player, uh, we wanted to see Muddy. So we went and made a pilgrimage down to D.C. And uh, we were, you know, went to both shows both nights. And um, I, I started shooting there. And... Um, Again, if you were polite and respectful, um, nobody seemed to mind. And often, some of the artists were kind of flattered. You want to take my picture? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, so that's what started me on my blues pilgrimage. Um, I never really, you know, I did it as a fan, uh, completely. And then, you know, poof! Thirty years later, I had vintage photos, you know? <laughs> and I was, um, you know, I was up in age where I was able to see muddy waters and. Uh, you know, John Lee Hooker and, and a lot of the real real deal guys. And he, also when they were still pretty vital, not just uh, older men walking with a cane, you know. Mm-hmm. So. And did you get to meet Muddy at that point or was that uh, later? Well, I met him briefly backstage, but I can't say I got to know him. Now, some of his, some of the people who are in his band, like Bob Margolin, uh, you know, mm-hmm. have over the years become good friends. Um, uh, I still see... Um, members of the Nighthawks who were the opening band that night and uh, Mark yep. Winner is a friend. Um, so, but I can't say, you know, other than some backstage thank yous and handshakes uh, that I knew Muddy Waters well. <laughs> okay. Well, it just seems like it was a thing. It was the same thing for me. I mean, um, I'm a blues fan and that's just what it is. And I mean, the reason I started going to the, to the blues festivals was because I love the music and I was given the opportunity to, you know, write about something that I liked, that I cared about, and that I thought others ought to find out about. So uh, that's the reason I went to the last blues festival in the Poconos that Michael put on. I got the chance to go in there, and thankfully Michael was really nice to me and, uh, you know, got me in. Yeah, he's, he's just the nicest person. And, you know, that's the thing that I've always really thought deeply about it because it's like I've worked just about every music format there is in 35 years and it's really interesting that certain music audiences have a real connection to the music and to their uh, to the people that they like and they know their history and blues fans more so than any it's like they know the history most of them they know who came up from where, they know who's connected to who. And I thought that that was one of the really cool things that I saw at festivals, seeing it at Michael's house party, same thing. It was like people just united by like digging some really good music. And Yeah, it's, it's, um, a, yeah. it's a it's a Go nice on, yeah. crowd, and uh, yeah, there's that common thread. I mean, the musicians, you don't go into the blues to get rich. You know, you go into yeah. the blues because that's what you do and that's what you love. And the fans are kind of the same way. They're, you know, they they want to hear the the real thing. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's a, it's 
uh, a personal thing. People people want to you know connect with it, and then uh, uh, you know they tend to follow it and stick with it. Yeah, and the other thing too is the keeping of it alive. Now this is an interesting thing is. Um, I didn't work with him, but I worked at XM Radio back in the day when Bill Wax was running Bluesville. Oh, and I was a good friend. Twi- yeah, great man. I I twisted Bill's arm to get on Bluesville, and didn't happen, which was probably a very good thing because I really didn't know what I was doing. But he was so kind to not say no. He yeah. just sort of was able to be very kind that way. But I just remember his connection and. I ran into him at that festival in the Poconos, and we mm. did a brief interview. And the artists today, he says there's a lot of people, if I remember correctly, there's a lot of people stepping off from the blues into other areas. But he also saw a newer generation that was really keeping it alive. And how do you how do you feel that, just as a music fan, that it's looking that it, for for the music? Um, well. Uh, two ways, kind of. Uh, one is, um, while I, I may enjoy it live, I'm not a huge fan of blues rock. And um, okay. a lot of some things, you know, just power guitar uh, all the time, maybe blues bass, but I see it much more as, uh, you know, coming from coming from and being uh, rock music. Um, mm-hmm. doesn't mean that it's bad music, doesn't mean that the people who make it are not wonderful people, but it's just not to my taste. I prefer blues that is um more culturally connected to the past um and you know respectful of the genre and you know uh maybe not quite as, as modern um i do think there's a lot of rock that's kind of really on the uh blue things that are called blues that are really kind of either masquerading as blues or on the edge of blues and rock and uh mm-hmm. that's just not to my taste as much i prefer things that have a little more historical context and a little more cultural context. Well, that's one thing uh, with the blues program I do online. It's um, it's interesting that I've been uh, trying to bend my ear to all of it and just try to be open-minded and yeah. go with my instinct as to what is what is and what isn't. And I'm seeing it, it's really nice to see some artists that really are like you said. They're being very much mindful of where they are coming from and where the artists came from and they're trying to follow that path and at the same time i'm of the mind that you know if if your feeling takes you someplace else and you you know if you get something for what you've written or what you've done and it and it just resonates with you that'll resonate with some audience somewhere oh yeah so, i mean and yeah. it's not certainly not up to me to define blues uh if right uh, I'm just expressing a personal taste and opinion, uh, but it's it's a big uh, tent. As a, a friend of mine once said, it's a come as you are party. You know, <laughs> well, that's a good way to look at it. Um, listen, Joe, let's um, move towards the book again because, okay. uh, as I mentioned, how detailed the photos are, mm-hmm. and um, they're sometimes called working hands, and and you see that and. Um, I think we may have already talked about this before, but the principle is the same, that that is a part of the person, that's a part of the being. And uh, is there any, you must see, when you when you watch the hands and you, when you watch how they move, does there, that connection must be there when you're really looking closely. Yeah, um, again, um, 
I um I want I want to get across a certain you know a certain feeling or a certain energy, and uh, you know I'm not um, maybe because I did start with film I'm not uh, the kind of photographer that turns on the camera at the beginning of the show and turns it off at the end and shoots a million frames I try and be selective mm-hmm. and uh, you know pick my moments um, that said I probably shoot more <laughs> as, you know uh, digitally just because it's not costing me a fortune <laughs> in processing mm-hmm. and uh, printing and such but um, right. no it's all about you know what you see and and trying to capture that and you know I've had a camera in my hand for, for almost 40 years pretty regularly so a lot of what I do is just reflexive you know, I, okay. I think, oh, I got to step back and change the lens or zoom in, or you know, I don't really think about it. It just, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden I'm stepping back and zooming in. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know well, it, trying to make it work. I get it. Um, now we talked about Willie King, but some of the most striking photographs in there, I think the one set of hands that really stood out for me was U.B. Blake. These, oh, yeah. this. I mean, it was like those these really long, thin fingers and the yeah. knuckles, and mm. that looked like a bird. Yeah, a lot of people say that. Yeah. It was like the <laughs> angle funny. that you took. Yeah. Um, he was well into his 90s uh, when I took that. That's the earliest picture in the book. It's from like 1982. Um, okay. And it was at a... <laughs> uh, he was still um, performing. Uh, he was funny and salty uh, and there was a Broadway show um, called I believe Yubi uh, and believe it or not uh, this was a press conference for the video disc that RCA put out uh, on the Broadway show and he was in a wheelchair but he was sharp as a tack and uh, he's a piano player and um, you know I didn't have um, the hands book or theme in, in mind but his hands were just amazing and like I said, when you shoot musicians, you shoot their hands occasionally. So I took that, and then when I was putting the book together, uh, I came across it and said, oh, yeah, <laughs> that works. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly did. Um, yeah. And so many others, too. Like, um, I mean, there were certain people that kind of went without saying that kind of had to be in the book. And the shot of B.B. King is a little bit wider angle, but it's like... Mm-hmm. That's one of those really great shots where you see his hands around Lucille and you you see his concentration and that was just yeah. a great action shot. I love that one. Well, thank you. Um, that was at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival and at that point I was consciously shooting hands. So I did my general shots and then uh, I I started you know work, working on the hands and um, I mean it's <laughs> we're on the radio so people can't see it but his hand is uh, prominent and his face is above it and a little behind, slightly out of focus, soft, because it's further in the distance. But he's uh, definitely got blues face. You know, he's got that scrunched-up concentration, uh, which, uh, you know, for want of a better term, is, is blues face. <laughs> well, th- that's a good, way to, a good way to put it. And, well, one... Um there was one in particular, I think, that the the guy who introduced me to the blues when I was 12, Johnny Winter. And oh, yeah. <laughs> same thing. These I remember from the first time I got to see him really close up. I'd seen him a couple of times before, but in, like, 1990, I finally got to see him at, I think it was at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut. Okay. And yeah. we were right up in at the stage. Yeah. I'm sorry? He lived in Connecticut uh, for a yes, while. Yes, that's right. So. He did for a while. Yeah. And... 
his I just remember these hands. Same kind of thing, these long fingers doing impossible moves on guitar. And I was like <laughs> and it's like you listen to his stuff from the seventies, which my brother passed along to me, and then I'm watching and I'm like listening to him do that and I'm like, Oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Uh well he was one of the people uh, you know, in the seventies, uh even the late sixties, uh, you know, first uh you know, brought Brought me and a lot of people from my generation into the blues, um, yeah. and uh, you know uh, I was able to fo- photograph him. You know, well, I think first in the mid '70s, all the way through till uh, I shot his 70th birthday party, maybe three or four months before he passed away. Right. So, yeah. And and I, I just I was I was fascinated at the age of 12 listening to him play off of Rick Derringer and people like that. And then deeper into some of his records, you heard the more blues oriented music yeah. and yeah. and things And his cover of BB Kings. It's my own fault. Mm-hmm. Like I'm like 12 listening to this going, what is this? Yeah. <laughs> and it took a while for my adolescent brain to really get it though. It took a few more mm-hmm. years, but it was like, that opened the door, and then for me, it was kind of like, okay, I need to work backwards now. Yeah, as well, I grew older, a similar thing happened to me. I mean, with Johnny Winter, but in particular with the um, Butterfield Blues Band, uh, Paul Butterfield. Oh wow! And um, I heard that the first two albums, and I, I loved them. And again, I didn't quite grasp the whole thing, but the first album has uh, two tracks that are covers of Elmore James and. Yep. Uh, it's a long story, but I stumbled on an Elmore James album, and I recognized the two tracks. And uh, I said, "Oh, well, I like blues, you know, Butterfield Blues Band, and you know these tunes I know." And I bought the album, and that changed things in a big way. <laughs> I started getting, you know, going back and trying to find the originators, and uh, never looked back. <laughs> yeah, well, it, the thing for me was it took a few more years for me to get back to it because I I just grew up listening to a lot of different music as a kid and. When I was in college, uh, it was very interesting because I, I host. I mostly did a. I did a progressive country music program, and that was really the music I grew up with. And I was doing that, and I also DJed for a country station. So that's where my head kind of was. And then it was really interesting because w- one of my history professors, I asked him during an interview what he thought the station ought to do, and he said, "I would love to hear more traditional music." He said, "I'd love to hear a blues program." And I thought, oh, thank you, Dr. Melmude, <laughs> because I did. I yeah. decided I kind of used my clout as the program director and said, I'm going to do it. And people were like, okay, go for it. And it was sort of dig out everything blues-oriented that I had in my meager collection and then just start hunting yeah. and trying to make it sound like I knew what the hell I was doing, and I didn't. But well, you get again, there. When I when I started my, my radio show, I – uh, you know, I had uh, a box full of records and, you know, didn't know. It taught me a lot, too, what people would call up and request, uh, you know, yep. uh, like Louis Jordan. Well, I had a couple of Louis Jordan cuts on uh, on an anthology, but yep. uh, it made me realize just how influential and how important, uh, you know, he was to the evolution of the music, you know. Uh, so I, I learned a lot uh, doing the radio uh, program yeah. and that was and I had a lot well, of fun too. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> yeah, well, my yeah, and the thing was, I went to school up in Maine. My my college station. I mean, when I got there my freshman year in like '83, we were just building an FM and just about to put it on the air, and we were going to get some reach and everything. And we had bought out a college that had closed its radio station, 
and there was this huge wall of ancient vinyl, mostly promo <laughs> copies from like the 70s. We didn't know what half of it was. We're all like, what is this? And I wish to hell I'd stolen it. But um, there was a Mississippi Fred McDowell record, and I I was just playing. I was really just fooling around in a production studio, Hmm. just looking for stuff. And all of a sudden, there's this guy, and I'm like, I know this name. Who is this? And I'm like, and I cleaned it off in about 20 years of dust off the vinyl. And I ended up playing some of it on, like, one of the tracks on the show, and I'm like, wow. Yeah, well, he was very special on uh, he's a mentor to yeah. Bonnie Raitt, uh, and uh, you know, uh, real influential around that time. So yeah, yeah. he he, he turned opened a lot of eyes. <laughs> and that's the great thing that I've always really admired about a lot of these artists. They've been so willing to take people under their wing. I know Sippy Wallace was a huge influence on Bonnie Raitt, as an example. Yeah people like that and I just always thought that was just really cool and it was so nice to, to you know that you would hear these stories of people who would just pass on their knowledge and you know pass on their teachings and that kind of thing and I've always thought that was that's something you just don't see as much of yeah I mean it was uh, the whole scene was uh, much much more casual in the 60s 70s and into the 80s um Mm-hmm. Festivals weren't as uh, you know as regular. Uh, clubs, if you were, again, if you were polite and respectful, uh, there was no problem taking pictures. You didn't need a credential. Um, and like I said uh, earlier, um, a lot of the artists were kind of flattered that you, you were interested. You know, they, um, they they appreciated their fans coming out. A lot of these people um, were getting their first you know national record uh, recording exposure. And so uh, they they appreciated their fans uh, by and large, and um, mm-hmm. you know again, um, it, it's doing the photography. It was more a question of how you did it than what you did. You know? Right. Now you had said that and artists were like, you really want to take pictures of me. What what kind of reactions did you get to some of the pictures of in this book, like of their hands? What did they think? Well, um, uh, most of them were very. Um, uh, happy uh i also mm-hmm. had a policy if you're in the book you get a book uh, i gave i haven't sought out every, each and every artist but as i ran into them at a festival or a cruise or something uh i would yeah. uh you know here please have you know thank you for being in the book and um you know here i have a copy and most people you know they they appreciate that i mean there have been some other books and photographers that didn't do that and it created some ill will but to me that was the only way to go um you know yeah, so. no, no, that's that's totally cool, and um, it's it's just a gesture. I guess it's you know it's yeah. politeness, and it's also sort of saying, well, thank you for for doing it. And yeah. no, I mean I've I've been fortunate in my book searching for Roy Buchanan that I I got a couple of people, Ruthie Foster and Kenny mm. Neal, were both incredibly kind. Yeah, they're to friends of lo- mine and lovely people. <laughs> they are. I know both um, uh, Ruthie and Ken Kenny. Yeah, I mean, I've I've met Kenny a couple of times, and I mean, I've gotten them copies of the books, mm-hmm. and uh, they they did say we would, you know, their manager said, well, we'd like a couple of copies. I'm sure, of course, yeah. and um, they were just, you know, uh, the nicest folks, and yeah. I felt, you know, you let me use your lyrics here. Here's what I did. You are, and I mean, they knew what I was going to do ahead of time and how I was going to present the lyrics. And it was about this is part of the story that must be told. And 
those lyrics hit me and moved me to write them in and say, okay, this is now part of the story. I can't change. I can't write any better than that. <laughs> you know, that's good. By the way, they're both Ruthie and Kenny are in in my book, Blue Sands. <laughs> yep, they are. Yeah. yeah. And now, I must ask about your publisher, Schiffer Publishing. How did they get involved uh, to uh, put this out? Okay, uh, Schiffer is a real publisher. It's not pay to play. You know, it's not print on right. demand. Um, right. They do niche books. They their their kind of specialty is to do. Um, Many smaller books than you know uh shoot for the be- you know the new york times bestseller um i had wanted once I got the hands idea, I worked with a um editor curator to kind of get a sequence going and part of what the book is about too is um it's one per pa- one photo per page and how they play off each other uh, it might be uh you know with Johnny winter it's a very high tech guitar next to uh Super Chicken Johnson playing a homemade diddly-bow guitar. Um, yep. So it's, you know, the high-tech and the low-tech. It can be old and new, um, close and far. You know, it's the juxtaposition. But anyway, uh, I worked with the curator, editor, came up with a um, sequence, and then I did a mock book, um, one of these things where you can, you know, uh, over the uh, Internet, uh, send in your pictures, and they have templates, and you can have a book you know people do their wedding or their vacation like that and it um it's you know makes a nice book and it's a one off uh it's not not cheap you know it's not a it's no way to publish a book but what it did is it gave right. me a really good portfolio a really good sample and i showed it to a variety of people uh and seeking input and advice um because i knew it wasn't the finished product but it was it looked good uh and one of them said oh you know you ought to show this to my friend at Schiffer and um i said okay and i got the contact information i was able to send them uh, a digital version of it um you know um from from the, the uh the company that made the book uh, i was able to do uh, a small version um uh, in size you know they, they they don't give you big files or big things nobody buys the book they just look at the website so but i was able to yeah. g- show it to him digitally to give him the idea and he said well, i like it i'll show it to the boss but no no promises six weeks mm-hmm. later a contract arrived <laughs> he said wow. we like it we'd like to do it <laughs> so at that point i'm thinking um hmm, maybe i should show it to two publishers <laughs> but uh right. i i spoke to some other photographers i know who'd worked with schiffer um and i cold called some uh some of their authors and um, everybody basically said, you know, they're nice people, they're honest, you're not going to get rich, but they'll make a nice book, and, uh, you know, they will get it out into the stores, they're, you know, it's it's real distribution. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, with a few modifications, I, I signed up, <laughs> and, you know, poof, uh, a year and a half later, I had a book. <laughs> well, that's very cool. Now, uh, we talked beforehand that uh, with COVID-19, it's like uh, work is kind of non-existent for you. Uh, what are you doing during this time, and uh, what do you plan to do once things lift a little bit? Well, um, I've been going back and trying to edit. You know, I have, again, this huge <laughs> uh, backlog of things that, you know, I'll get around to it kind of projects, uh, both musical and otherwise. Um, I've been shooting New York parades since shortly after 9-11, I, I, mm-hmm. so I wanted to do something a little less serious. So I started shooting the uh, the the festive parades, the Easter bonnets, uh, the Halloween, uh, St. Patrick's Day, Mermaid Parade in Brooklyn, and um, well, 
you know, a couple others. So I have that I'm trying to edit. I have a project I'm working on down south, uh, just black and white, simple black and white pictures of my travels down south. And I'm trying to get a new book proposal out, and uh, I'm working on a, slowly working on a new website, uh, which uh, will be both for my commercial work, because I think some of that will come back. Um, I don't think it'll ever be what it was back, you know, in the go-go 90s and the dot-com boom and like that. But there'll be jobs out there, so I want to promote that. And then I want to um, also, through first starting with a new website, um, get the uh, music stuff out in front of people and, um, you know, try and, um, well, kind of monetize the archive, um, you know, right now it, it exists, it's there, but not many people know about it. I'm well known within the blues world, but I'd like to get it uh, further out there. And I have jazz and soul people and, you know, uh, James Brown and Al Green are in the book and, you know, things yeah. like that. So I'm working on projects, mostly doing uh, work with existing photos. That is cool. And where can we uh, get Blues Hands? Where can we find it? Um, you can get it off my website, which is josepharosen.com, and um, there's some samples there. <laughs> Again, we're on the radio, uh, but you can you can see some sample photos and get some get an idea what the book is about. Um, again, josepharosen.com, uh, and then you can purchase it there. All books from the website are signed, and there's an option if you want a personalization or an inscription. Uh, you can get that too, um, and then otherwise it's uh, you know it's on Amazon and uh, Barnes and Noble and you know most major booksellers and independent stores too, which deserve your support. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So it's it's out there, it's available, and Schiffer directly if you want to go that route. But again, the ones off my website are, are signed and can be inscribed. All right. Well, listen, uh, Joe, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating, and oh, no, I really been great. appreciate it. Well, I appreciate right. uh, you're asking me, and I uh, hope everybody enjoys it and uh, checks out the book when they get a chance. <laughs> all right. All the best, Joe. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot, Corey. Our guest on this edition of the Brown Posey Press Show has been Joseph Rosen, author of Blues Hands, a book of close-up works of the hands of blues, soul, and R&B artists on Schiffer Publishing Limited. I'm your host, Tori Gates, author of Searching for Roy Buchanan, available at brownposeypress.com and Amazon. The sequel, Call It Love, is set for release later this year. This is the Book Speak Network. <laughs> 